0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Outlier Academy's book club series, where once a month we highlight a book we love around business, leadership, health, or investing that we can't stop recommending. I'm Daniel Scrivener, and on the show today, I sit down with Brian Scudamore to talk about how he built 1-800-GOT-JUNK into a $700 million per year business, as well as his book, Willing to Fail, How Failure Can Be Your Key to Success, also called WTF, Brian's story is remarkable. More than 33 years ago, he had the idea for 1-800-GOT-JUNK when he saw a junk hauling truck across the street while in the drive-thru at McDonald's. Through an incredible number of twists and turns over the years, including buying a partner out of the business and nearly bankrupting the business, he managed to grow it into a global brand with franchise locations in countries around the world. And today he does over $700 million in sales per year. In this episode, we cover why he thinks taking a leap and being willing to fail is the key to success, the lessons he learned in pivotal moments as he built and scaled the business, how 1-800-GOT-JUNK has managed to escape competition and own a space that would otherwise be made up of mom-and-pop operations, how he bounced back from failure time and time again, and how he's added two new franchise concepts, both Shack Shine and Wow! One Day Painting, to his collection of businesses at Ordinary to Extraordinary Brands, which is 1-800-GOT-JUNK's Parrot Company. You can find the notes and transcript for this episode at outlieracademy.com 92, that's 92, and you can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian Scudamore, that's Brian S-C-U-D-A-M-O-R-E. With that, enjoy the conversation. Brian Scudamore, welcome to Outlier Academy. I'm so excited to have you on. Thanks for taking the time.
1: Yeah, I'm thrilled to be here. Always uh, love these convos and the learning I get reflecting on my story
0: is always fun. (laughs) Well, I will try to be a good, I guess, question asker. (laughs) Perfect. So in this episode, you know, we're really going to be talking about two things. One is the story of 1-800-GOT-JUNK and how you took that from zero to 300 plus million dollars today. But the second one is one of two books you've written. It sounds like you have a new book that's ready to come out later this year. I do. (laughs) Which is exciting. Uh, So this is your last book, which has an amazing title, which is just WTF, which stands for willing to fail. And it's an amazing little gem of a book. So the first question I want to ask, which is a little bit of a curveball is, you know, going through that book again, I noticed there was a dedication at the beginning of the book to Grandpa Kenny and Grandma Florence, who first lit my entrepreneurial fire. Tell us a little bit of that story and the significance that they had in your life.
1: Yeah, I was born in San Francisco. Lived there till I was about seven years old, till my mother remarried and we moved to Canada, which is home today. And my grandmother and grandfather, every spring vacation, summer vacation, Christmas holidays, I'd go down and work in their army surplus store. They had this store in a dodgy end of San Francisco. And uh, I remember just playing the game of business. My time with them in that store was connecting with customers, walking in, looking for something. and. I got to show up with energy and sell and connect. And I was most inspired by watching how my grandparents played the game of business. It was about people, finding the right people, treating them right. And because it was in a dodgy neighborhood, we'd often get people coming in off the street who asked for money. And what was fascinating about my grandparents is they never gave money, but they always gave what that person really wanted was an ear, a hug, love. And they just gave people the time and attention that they wanted. And they had a level of respect on that street that anytime it was an area where people would often get robbed, my grandparents didn't get robbed. People knew that you never mess with Lorber Surplus, great people. And it was an inspiration. And it really did light my spark of entrepreneurship.
0: And uh, here I am. (laughs) So cool. I actually can't imagine finding a Surf Plus store in San Francisco these days. (laughs) That was a little bit of a bygone era. (laughs) For sure. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So, you know, as we start to get in and talk a little bit about the story of 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I thought it might be helpful because we're going to cover a lot of time. You know, you founded it 33 years ago. It's been built up a lot since. So can you just give everybody a little bit of a sense of what the business looks like today? How much annual revenue you guys do, number of employees, just number of locations around the world? So I'm excited to say we're double
1: the number you threw out. You threw out 300 million, we're we're 600 600 million Amazing. is what we'll do this year. And it's never been about the money. So while you and I today will talk about dollars, to me, the dollars is not what it would do for Brian, not what it would do for anyone. It's the significance of the number of people we have in our company. 6,000 truck team members across 2,000 trucks, Canada, the United States, Australia, It started as this little tiny business as a way to pay for college. I never really saw that I'd be an entrepreneur any different than my grandparents. Little business, living the dream, having fun. But when I started to realize that this industry of junk removal, what was started to pay for college, there was more to it. Nobody had professionalized the junk removal business. Mom and pop, fragmented business. Nobody used any sort of brand name. It was just Paul's hauling, Dave's hauling. And I had a chance to transform and create a category, an industry. And I knew that one day we would build the FedEx of junk removal, clean, shiny trucks, friendly, uniform drivers, on-time service, upfront rates. And that's been our basic business model, hauling away someone's junk, carting it off to be recycled, donated, reused, disposed of, worst case, and it's been an amazing business. I mean, even during the pandemic, things have been growing like crazy and feel very blessed for the category and the space that we're
0: in. I'm sure during the pandemic, I think a lot of people were forced to spend a lot more time looking at their junk, <laughs> whereas previously they would get to leave the house and go to work. <laughs> so I imagine that was probably helpful.
1: The amount of stuff that I bought for my now home office, yes where it's just like, okay, I need this, I need that. and you, you realize you can't use it all and It's uh, people created junk. They got rid of junk. Been good for our business.
0: Well, congratulations on 600 million. It's incredible that I think, yeah, I was trying my best to find up-to-date stats. I think the article I found was from 2018. (laughs) So I'm not not surprised things have evolved since then. So, you know, then I want to go back and talk a little bit about, to kind of contrast that, to give people a sense of just how humble (laughs) things were in the early days. You know, can you paint a picture for people, kind of take us back in time, you know, 33 years ago, and just give people a quick sketch of what it was like, the day that, you know, you were looking for business opportunities, ways to make money and saw this junk removal truck and had the idea for, you know, what would eventually become many, many years later, 1-800-GOT-JUNK.
1: Yeah, I was uh, in 12th grade, close to graduation, but one course short at the time. And there I was in a McDonald's drive through struggling with what am I going to do for my future? How am I going to pay for college if I can even get in? And was in this McDonald's drive through saw a beat-up old pickup truck. It had plywood sides built up on the box. It said Mark's hauling on the side. And I looked at that and I'm like, I'm going to go buy a truck and start hauling junk. That will be my ticket to pay for school. Now, I never actually finished high school. I talked my way into college. And then three years in, even though I was paying my own way, I was earning an education, but I was getting much more business experience from running my own business versus studying in school. So I dropped out. My father, who does has done more school than anyone I've ever met, he's a liver transplant surgeon. He said, "Brian, you kidding me? You're sitting me down and telling me that you're going to leave school and drop out with only one year left? Finish your education. You can always continue to build this business at a later date." And I said, "Dad, my business opportunity might not always be there. The University of British Columbia, my last school, will still be standing if I ever choose to go back." So I said, "I'm gonna." Put it all on the line. I'm going to build this business. And I went out the next day and bought a second truck and said, I'm going to show my dad, prove to the world that I can build this. And the first eight years took a long time to build this business to a million dollars. Now that felt on one hand, a big number to me, but on the other hand, it was slow eight years to get there, but it was me tinkering and figuring out the model and having these proven systems on which I could scale. And I don't want to sound like I was smart and knew what I was doing, but in hindsight, looking back, it was wise that I took my time in building the business and built it slowly, but built a really solid foundation. Because once I got into franchising, ultimately, we we're able to scale very, very quickly on a platform of success.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a franchise business is, I would think, largely just systems and scaling those systems and adding more people and trucks and locations. So yeah, I think those early years spending your time on system building uh, was really smart. I wanted to talk a little bit about As I was reflecting on, you know, going back and reading your book, just going and listening to interviews that you've done, some themes started to bubble up, at least for me, of secrets of success. And these aren't things necessarily, I mean, I think they'd be pretty clear to others, but these aren't things you've called out. These are just things that have kind of stood out to me. And so I want to kind of go through them one by one, because I think they're really interesting. And one was, you've already alluded to it a little bit, but the power of a brand, because I think number one, you know, one of the things I want to talk about in a second is competition, because it's surprising to me that it doesn't seem like there's a lot of well-honed competition for one your cot junk and yet it's a space where you would assume there would be a massive amount of competition. So d- talk a little bit about brand and why you knew or why you felt early on that having a brand was important.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I've always loved brands. One of the earliest brands that I loved was McDonald's which not necessarily the food, but the community and what they stood for and their marketing and their people. And I ended up just getting excited about the possibility of what you could do with a brand. Starbucks would have been the next one that I really and still to this day fell in love with their third place and what Howard Schultz has done to create a pervasive brand that really is everywhere. And it had revolutionized a space where it used to be mom and pop coffee shops. And now it's Starbucks and some other big ones. And we tried to do the same thing. And I knew that the power of a brand, when I would go from Vancouver, where I'm based, back to see family in San Francisco, I'd hunt out a Starbucks. I'd see Starbucks and that was my, okay, you're away, but you're still at home. You've got that cup of coffee. And I started to understand that brand was powerful. People buy brands and they buy brands for how it makes them feel. And so looking at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, we were the rubbish boys for the first eight years when we started. And it was really me with a vision for something bigger. But the goal became to build the FedEx a junk removal. Now, what did FedEx have that I didn't have in the junk removal space? They had clean, shiny trucks, they had friendly uniform drivers. We weren't at that level yet. But I started to envision, what if, can you imagine if it could or when it would look like FedEx in terms of the level of professionalism, what that would do for our customers who would end up using us all over Canada, Australia, the United States. There's power, great power in in building a brand.
0: How do you think about it? What a brand is, you know, even hearing you describe FedEx there, it sounds like in some ways you can think about a brand as a promise and it's your job to then deliver on that ruthlessly every single time. Is that your mental model? If not, what is your mental model in terms of how to like articulate what a brand is at the end of the day?
1: Yeah, you almost took the words out of my mouth. I always say a brand is a selection of promises that we make and keep. So when someone looks at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, we call it our QFAs, our quality focus areas. On-time service, upfront rates, clean, shiny trucks, friendly, uniform drivers. Our franchise owners in the early days would say, why do you care so much about clean, shiny trucks? This is the junk removal business. Nobody cares. They just want their stuff gone. They understood the friendly, uniform drivers. They could see how that could make an impression. But I would explain that when you see a dirty junk truck out there that isn't looking great, it doesn't give you that first impression that these people are people you can trust. These are people who know what they're talking about. I used to be inspired by FedEx knowing that, and still to this day, you do not see dirty FedEx trucks out there. They have a rule and policy that they will actually take it off the road if it's you know scratched, dented, dirty. And you might see a dented FedEx truck getting towed, but you're not gonna see one driving. And that relentless drive to preserve the brand FedEx used to say, and clearly I'm a fan, but they used to say the world on time when it absolutely positively has to get delivered overnight. And I remember that feeling of you would FedEx something, you'd use it as an actual term, a verb. You knew when you needed to depend on something getting delivered, you'd call FedEx. So the power of a brand is the set of promises that we make and we keep. Now, let's be clear, plenty of people try and build a brand and make a lot of promises. But what happens when they don't keep them, the brand doesn't thrive and ultimately dies.
0: Yeah. And I think that leads to my second point, which is, you know, one thing that it feels like you've done incredibly well is just do hard things consistently well again and again and again and again. And, you know, I can imagine even being... I don't know, putting myself in your shoes and having that conversation with the franchise owner and, you know, you hear them, you hear that they probably don't feel like they want to take the time (laughs) or the money or whatever it is to keep this truck clean. But, you know, that's one of many things. Do you find yourself to be a particularly disciplined person or was it, you know, an exercise of cultivating that, okay, no, we have to deliver on this ruthlessly every single time and getting better and better and better at that?
1: Yeah, I think I'm a very focused person. So, there's a sign behind me here that Walt Disney quote "It's kind of fun to do the impossible to make the impossible possible. you've got to make choices. you've got to really thoughtfully plan out what what's your next move, and you only get several choices, several options and and sort of attempts at something. so it's really about focus. I'm sure there's a million things I could talk to our franchise owners or our team could talk to them about to say, you got to do this, 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 and that, but let's pick one. What do we want to be the best in the world at? What's our focus? What's the most important thing right now? And when I say brands make promises, do we ever break our promises? Do we ever make mistakes? Of course. But like my book, WTF, Willing to Fail, we're willing to make some mistakes as long as we learn from those and figure out how do we make things better next time. We have stories of customers who we've made mistakes with for sure. And some of those mistakes have caused some sort of pain and, and, and damage. When you deal with that properly, a customer is often surprisingly more loyal than if they never had a problem at all. And then we take that and we learn from it so that we can systematize it across our franchise family to ensure that no one else has to make that same mistake.
0: Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Then another thing I think that um, is interesting to think about is you know, you obviously made an explicit choice to follow a franchising model, and you've talked a lot about that in other interviews. But, you know, one thing I think that's really interesting about that is, one, you're very clearly people-centric. You care deeply about people. And I think, you know, with franchising, the other thing, and I think this is probably especially true with one 800 Got you're able to tap into this entrepreneurial spirit where it's not just people that want to come and work, it's people that want to build their own business, and they want to do that with you. What is it like to... You know, create a platform for people to effectively realize their dreams and do that by building their own businesses. And how has that been a part of the 1 800 Got Junk model?
1: Yeah, it's been the number one driver in my life. So, beyond my family and personal life, the number one thing that drives me, my gift, my purpose is helping to inspire entrepreneurship. I had heard once that 66% of Americans dream of running their own business, but very few take the leap. Now, what's in their way? an idea, a model, courage. I love the fact that I'm able to tell stories of, hey, if a high school dropout like me can get out there with 700 bucks and buy a pickup and build a $600 million, eventually a billion dollar plus brand, so could you. Imagine what you could do if you plant those seeds, those ideas and, and take action. So my second book called BYOB, Build Your Own Business, Be Your Own Boss, I think there's a couple of motivations there why people want to build a business. And I really take a look in the book at the two different options people can take. Do they do a blank sheet? I'm going to start something from scratch like Brian did and go through all the mistakes and maybe grow slower. Or am I going to choose latching on to someone else's idea and platform in building a business? And there's franchises, there's other models, but franchising to me, what what actually really clicked for me about a year ago, and I talk about this in the book, is Shaquille O'Neal, number 34, you know, an incredible basketball player, world champion, someone who I got to know a little bit last year through Zoom and through some connection, was here's a guy who took everything he learned in basketball, your body makes you retire, but you don't stop living life and building things. And he said, how do I take what I learned with all my winning teams, the sports-minded, goal-driven, talent-building, let's lead something special. He said, I'm going to put it into franchising. I'm grabbing a proven recipe. I'm putting in leaders in my businesses. I'm coaching and developing and cheerleading them to be successful. He said, I don't need to be the guy that comes up with the idea and I shouldn't be the guy. I'm the one to put the right People in place, build a team and win the game of business versus basketball. And his story, if anyone ever Googles and sees what he's doing these days in the world of franchising, it's phenomenal.
0: Yeah. He owns, I think, hundreds of different franchise locations (laughs) across Domino's and others. Worth
1: hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. And so he's now started something called Big Chicken, which is uh, his own franchise. And I mean, it's been fantastic to see what he's done when he and I connected. It was about changing lives. Our mutual sort of connection and sync up was about changing people's lives. And when you can give someone a proven recipe, you know, think of someone Googling and wanting to bake a cake. Most people don't start from scratch and go a little bit of baking soda, a little bit of sugar. I mean, you, you, some people want to create, but very few people want to create from scratch. You Google, you find a five-star recipe with a ton of reviews and you take your first attempt at it and maybe get it right. Take a second attempt, you master it. That's what people want. They want to create something. They don't necessarily want to do it from scratch. And so our formula has, we've taken it from 1-800-GOT-JUNK and we've done wow one day painting where we paint people's homes in a day and then shack shine, windows, gutters, power washing, and Christmas lights, the house detailing space. So people have often said, why do you go out and start other businesses? You're disfocusing yourself. We're taking the same formula. We are in the business of making ordinary businesses exceptional through customer experience. They're just different platforms.
0: It's a fascinating story with Shaquille O'Neal.
1: <laughs> Guy is, besides being one of the funniest guys I've ever met, yeah, he is just a genius, and he just knows how to find the right people
0: and build winning teams. And I think it shows a lot of humility as well, too. That he, you know, at the same time, here's someone who's incredibly successful that whose ego could potentially get in the way and be like, "No, Shaquille, you know what's best? Why go and start a franchise? Go and start your own locations, you know, to to be able to be." humble and intellectually honest enough to be like no i don't need to do that (laughs) i have other skills so I want to go back and talk a little bit about escaping competition because, you know, I think one quote I've been thinking about, I don't know, it's been running around in my head for a little while is, you know, Peter uh, Thiel has this quote where he talks about all failed businesses are the same. They basically fail to escape competition. And, you know, it may, and when I think about that and apply that to the space that you're in, as you talked about, there's an enormous amount of mom and pop businesses. So small businesses or a proprietor that maybe has one or a couple of different trucks. I haven't seen anyone else take the approach you've taken, which is to say, this is a platform. We're actually going to turn this into a brand. It's not going to be anyone's name. And, you know, one, it seems like you don't have a lot of competition, at least, you know, I remember being in San Francisco when it was time to move. It was like literally the only thing that came to mind was, of course, I'm going to call 100 Got junk. It worked out great. And so that's probably the power of the brand. But talk a little bit about competition. Do you feel like you face much competition if not what do you credit that to? What did you do that helped you escape ruthless competition and compete with yourself?
1: Yeah, so it's it's a great question. I love the conversation on competition, but my belief is not to escape it, it's to embrace it. It's to welcome the competition, work with the competition, befriend them. So one of the, the simplest stories are the early days, and I talk about this again in my book is there was a guy, Mike, who had a company called Trash Busters, and they went into competition against me. This was a guy who worked with me, who was a friend of mine. We'd have beers together. I'd share all the financials. I'd tell him everything. And we had a lot of fun. He was a great asset to the business until he went out on his own. And he called me one day sitting down. No, I'm not. Why? Well, I'm going into competition against you. And he started Trash Busters. Now, of course I was hurt. And what does a 25, 26 year old do? You try and do everything to get in the way. But all my getting in the way of the competition and trying to stop him and thinking so much about his business, who was thinking about my business? No one. They were thinking about their business, and I was thinking about their business, and they were growing faster than I did. So I decided to shift from that anger to an attitude of gratitude. What can I learn from one of my closest friends going into competition against me? What is he doing better with Trash Busters? They're not around anymore today and I didn't wish that on them, and we've still kept in touch, which has been cool, is what are you doing better? They expanded to the United States before I did. Country 10 times the size of Canada where I'm based. That inspired me to go follow them. I followed them. I did it better. And here we are today, the world's largest junk removal company. So an attitude of gratitude with competition. And if you're in a niche or a niche, as you might say, that's just too full, go find another sandbox to play in that's similar. So let's take now my second business, Wow One Day Painting. The painting industry, there are a lot of brands and a lot of great ones, and ones that are way bigger than Wow One Day Painting. We created, or I saw and bought, and then created a new category. Plenty of people go in and paint your home and do a great job at a great price, but what if they could go in like wow, and they painting and do the whole house in a day, minimal disruption, proper coordination, preparation and planning, and we get it done at the same quality at a similar price. And so we created a new category. I mean, think Pepsi and Coke. Coke goes in and does Diet Coke and a new category that became massive. Where can someone go to not compete against, but to start a new focus? And uh, so lots lots in there, but I'm passionate about it. We invite the competition to our office. We do a stand-up daily huddle every day. While right now we're in a Zoom world mostly, we have invited people to either join us online or in person, and they're in the same business. And they're like, why'd you do that? You're sharing your numbers. Well, you're going to find it if you want it anyways. We might as well be friends and help each other, which we've done. And so competition is a great thing.
0: Yeah, I love that idea the subtle reframing of don't focus on the negative aspect of competition But focus on competition as one Appreciating that you have it because it can raise your game and then yeah What are you what are they doing that maybe we can take or we can learn from? I think that's a really interesting way to reframe it One of the themes that I really liked and willing to fail is in a lot of ways. I think my favorite part of the book is it's just a series of very short stories and lessons from your life. And I think that I like that because you were light with words, but you communicated a lot. I feel like business books today are getting bigger and bigger. And then you get to the end and you're like, oh, could have been 50 pages. So I wanted to talk about some of the lessons and stories in there that stuck out to me. And one of them was just this notion of bouncing back. And you talk about, you'd share the story of, you had just bought in your first truck. A couple of weeks go by, it ends up breaking down and you're faced with this massive bill weeks into i'm sure having very little cash (laughs) this is your only truck you know for a lot of people this would have felt like an insurmountable hurdle and i love the quote in the book you talk about you know that this was you saw this as an opportunity as an entrepreneur it was a test and it was your job to bounce back and stick to plan talk about that lesson or other examples of having to bounce back and and why that's such an important i don't know lesson
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean a bunch of thoughts. You know, first of all, I think athletes again tying business as we did with with Shaq to sports. You have to learn in sports to fail before you can win. You have to taste them both. It's the failure that helps you grow and get better. So I say to people when I, you know, the title of the book WTF Willing to Fail is don't be afraid to make mistakes. Because every one of those mistakes is a gift if you can take the time to unwrap it and say, what do I need to learn from this that will help me be better? So if I look at mistakes I've made over the years, the wrong people and getting people out, 1994, five years into business, I fired my entire company, as you remember from the book. Massive mistake, but that was on me. As the leader, I had to come into that room that day and say, I'm sorry. was my fault I let you down, didn't develop you, train you, give you the love and support you needed to be successful, and we're going to part ways. But what that lesson taught me is, unlike having 600 people today between our head offices, I'm not firing 600 people because I've got the wrong people. I've got all these amazing people because I learned the lesson a long time ago, who is right for us. These weren't bad human beings. They were just the wrong people and had the wrong attitude for what I needed for my small little thriving company. And they say one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. I got nine of the 11 bad apples. I got 100% of the people out and just said, I'm sorry, but I need to start again. So we make mistakes. It's okay. It really is. And so when these things happen, the first thing I do is I reflect and I say, what could be a potential gift that comes from this hard Time in my business, hard time in my life, whatever it might be. Robert Herjevic, who has uh, become a friend, who is someone on Shark Tank and before that, Dragon's Den in Canada. We've spent some time together and he's fantastic. He spoke, at, I asked him to do a favor and speak at our conference. And I said, How do entrepreneurs, how do we inspire entrepreneurs to deal with the challenges? You know, there's ups and downs. And how do you deal with the downs? How do you pick yourself back up and get going? after a truck breaks down and you go, oh my gosh, this should be the end. He said, Brian, as an entrepreneur, we need to remember, we get to do this. Like we get to solve problems. We get to find a better way. We get to fix things. And it resonated with me. It's my belief of when you're on a roller coaster, I'm the kind of guy who still acts like a little kid. And I'm just like, woo. And I got my hands up when I'm going up and when I'm going down and I'm just enjoying the ride and I'm there. And so I cannot honestly take a step back from my business and say, there's a mistake or a dark day that I would ever take away from my business because I needed it for us to get to this
0: next place. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't mean that it wasn't difficult when you were in that moment, but I think you can reframe it like you talked about. And I love it. Yeah. And I love that subtle reframing as well, too, of... Yeah. You can look at it as, oh my gosh, the world's out against me. This truck just broke down. Or you can just look at it. It's a challenge. I mean, it's a, it's an opportunity. It's a wonderful, amazing opportunity and a gift that I get to do this. So let me figure it out. <laughs> let me prove it to myself.
1: Yeah. A guy, uh, Ben Zander, he used to be the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra. He came to speak to an entrepreneur group of mine years ago and got to spend some time with him. Whenever there's a problem, he just goes, how fascinating. And he smiles and he's like, okay, What do we do now? I mean, it really can be an adventure. And it's just a simple shift in the brain to go, okay, I lost my job. We have a franchise partner in Wow One Day Painting, Kim Rude lost his job, got fired. And that day said, okay, this is just, this is happening for a reason. And it, it led him to
0: us. Yeah. On that theme of it's all about the people, yeah, you have that story in your book, which sounds incredibly challenging of basically having to let your entire team go and then having to hire new people. But you have other examples, which for anyone that knows entrepreneurs, this shows up again and again and again. I can't think of a successful business, a successful founder I know who wouldn't completely agree that you should do anything and everything possible to get the best people in the business. Because, you know, I've even heard people say things along the lines of if you get the right people, every, you know, kind of solve so many other problems. One of the other stories you share in the book is, you know, the lengths that you went to to find the right number two, the right president and COO. And, you know, you have this false start where you find somebody that, you know, know you could describe as a shiny polished executive that's done this before okay cool get them in the business oh that doesn't work out (laughs) you need to go do it again what you know and i i get it because i've been there but i think for people that haven't kind of been in it, and and understand and felt why getting that right person is so important. Talk about why you had the conviction that it was worth going through 75 interviews and one false start to find this person. And just why is it at the end of the day that, you know, you'll do almost anything to get the right people in the right roles?
1: Well, well, there's a lot there. So, that was definitely when I had Cameron Harold, who was my first COO, still a great friend. We just sort of hit a ceiling together. It was 106 million in revenue. He helped us get there from 2 million. But the, but two ADD entrepreneurial, quick moving like I was. You can't have two like that at the top. Then I brought an ex Starbucks COO to the table, president, and we failed together miserably after 14 months. I'd failed so hard, and had our franchise partners come in and say, Brian. You're not the guy to run this business. Why did you get the second person out? And how are you going to make it right? And so that was hard. But the reason I really, the third time said, I mean, it's kind of like Goldilocks and the three bears, right? I had to get it right that, that time and, and had to find something that was just right. I had to look and look and look until I found that right person. Now, the right COO for me, and that's the key. I think when people try and find the right people, People ask me all the time. The common question with Eric Church, our president who has been around 10 years and hopefully forever is people say, where did you find him? To me, that's the wrong question because the where makes it sound like where, where did he come from that makes him so great? The question should be, I believe, how did you find him? I started by, I made a sheet, line down the middle, one side, all the things in the business I'm good at and love to do and should do on the other side the things that I'm bad at, don't like to do, that the business needs and I shouldn't do, who's going to do those things? And I listed out what those were, and I created a mini painted picture, a vision of what I was looking for. And I was so clear in about three paragraphs of what I was looking for that when I shared it with people, three people on the planet, unrelated, said, you're looking for Eric Church. Now, they didn't say, you're looking for Eric or this person or that person they're like you are describing someone i know so the how was i was so clear what i was looking for in someone to partner with me and 75 interviews and plane flights all over the place i found him and still to this day we he and i have looked at that mini vision and he's like yep that's me there's not a word in there that isn't me and my advice or challenge out to someone else looking for their integrator their second in command their partner whatever it is is to get really really clear on what it is your gaps are that you need filled by someone else
0: yeah and i think that's a really critical point because i would imagine maybe if you were to go through that same exercise but maybe 5 years earlier in the company you might not have had a good as good a picture of what you're good at and what you're not good at. So I think one other piece of advice there would be, how do you help if there's a founder or an entrepreneur you're talking to that's just struggling to also figure out what am I good at? Any words of wisdom for them and (laughs) go about getting to reality there, getting to truth?
1: Yeah, my experience there is you ask people that you work with and that you've had enough life experience with that you know will give you an honest answer and start with, what am I great at? What do I do better than anyone else? I mean, I could take my three kids as an example, and I could tell you what they're all gifted at and what they're really bad at, right? I'm a parent. I can look at it objectively and say, find someone that can really give you that feedback. And then it's yourself looking in the mirror to go, okay, did I hear the feedback that Daniel gave me? Am I bad at that? And I want to fix that. Or do I really pour all my time into this is the gift
0: I have? Yeah, that's great advice. And clearly, you know, ingrained in that, which is, you know, somebody that you trust is someone whose advice you're going to listen to. Someone who, when they tell you stuff you might not want to hear, you're comfortable hearing it. (laughs) You know, your ego doesn't have to show up and try to refute them. Yeah.
1: It's that blind window of something you don't see that there's a group of people who all can see, but you're too afraid to ask and get that feedback. If you can get that, it's gold.
0: One of the other things that um you know I actually had forgotten, and then I real realized reading through the book and kind of researching this is, you know there was a moment in time where waste management tried to buy one hundred got junk for seventy five to one hundred million. And I feel like one it's just interesting, and in then it's a commonality of there are multiple very successful, very large businesses today that turned down an acquisition at some point in their company history. But it's also interesting in that, you know when I square that up with, You started with nothing, you bootstrapped your business, you know, eight years to get to a million. So what a roller coaster ride to get to, you know, the level where you could have this um, kind of acquisition opportunity. I imagine there was a part of you that found that really appealing. What did it feel like in the moment when you got that offer and what gave you the conviction to turn it down and say no?
1: Yeah. So did it feel good? I think I was more scared. I was in a little tiny boat out from shore so far that we couldn't see the shore on a fishing trip where they were sort of whining and dining me at this fancy resort. And we had a blast. But in that moment, when they're asking me this, I'm like, there's two garbage execs and myself in a little boat where I can't be seen. It's kind of (laughs) going back to Sopranos and going, is this going to end well? What if I, you know, if I say no, is that okay? I felt flattered that I was being offered money, but I actually, I can't remember if I tell the story in the book, but I actually turned around and said, You guys could give me 10 times that. You could give me a ridiculous sum like a billion. It wasn't like I was looking for more money and I wanted them to know, this is a passion play. I am having way too much fun building something with great people that I love, watching their lives get better, and watching us take the challenge of doing all these impossible things together. I wouldn't have sold that for any price. So a billion dollars would have been insane. But they could have literally offered it and I still would have literally said, thank you, I'm flattered, but but no thank you. And I look back today and I go, it was the right decision because I had a vision that I didn't think anybody else could see. And my job over time was to get them on board with we can do this. And how fun would it be to build this together? And I, I don't want to sell that. I mean, you know, again, I've got three kids. Would I ever sell one of them? I mean, you know, on, a, on a, the odd day, maybe, right? But, you know... <laughs> You love your children and you love being a part of them growing. Business is very similar that way. Now I get that not everyone's that way and they go, I want to build, I want to get it to a point point, I want to sell and I want to get out and do it again. I don't want to do it again from scratch. I want to continue to build from the foundation that we've been growing. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. I hear very clearly in that, you know, one, I think you're, Very focused on extremely long-term games, which makes sense because you've been building this business for 33 years. But I think if that wasn't there, I imagine you would have never been in a position to say no to an offer like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's, you know, my personality is such, I'm so ADD. I mean, I see squirrels running everywhere and it's just like, wow, I have trouble staying focused for long periods of time. I'm surprised I've stayed this focused. But it's because it's at my core of understanding that I want to watch others grow. And I want to play a little tiny part of planting that seed and watching people live the dream of business ownership. So it makes it easy. I love what I do and every single day of it. So I feel very
0: lucky. So cool. I want to close the conversation by asking a few questions about, you know, what you've learned as you kind of look back over the last 33 years. And, you know, one of the first questions I want to ask is, in what ways do you think you've changed and grown the most over that time? You know, and I think maybe another way of saying that would be what surprises you about who you are today versus who you were back then? And just what has that journey been like for you?
1: (laughs) I often say if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. I don't actually think I get, so here's how I've changed over time. I don't think I get smarter and smarter and smarter. I think I actually feel less smart and less smart and less smart as time goes on because I just realize how so little I know, how much curiosity is out there and how much most people can do things so much better than I can. So I look at life and I go wow, I just keep letting go of things and getting out of the way because people can do them better. And instead of getting smarter, it's a really strange feeling. But I just, I end up loving life more because I'm watching all these other people take opportunities inside the company, outside, whatever it is.
0: Yeah, it seems like over time, collectively making more and more space for others and giving up that space yourself, which is a rare, which is a rare thing. I think that's not something that's very common. (laughs) And it's interesting when people will say,
1: look what you've built. And I get that all the time, right? $600 million with 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I mean, we'll be $700 million with all our brands at the end of this year. It's a, a big number. And and people go, look what you've built. And I, I just, I can't ever accept that. Someone can say, look what you've started. And I get that. But we've built this. We were on uh, Guy Raz, How I Built This Podcast, which is, you know, world-class and i said in some social media stuff my my only regret is the name cuz it says how i built this and i can't say that it's how i it's how we built this and it takes an army it takes a team when you find those right people and plug everyone into the right seats and they thrive it's it's fascinating
0: yeah i have to imagine too that that's a big reason you've gotten to the scale you're at because i think a lot of founders stay in their way for far too long and if they don't and if they hold on to too many things and they don't have that attitude that there are many others and there's many things that need to be done well and you know i need to ultimately assemble this team i have to imagine that that's been a big part of why you've been able to scale to this level as well too
1: maybe it's uh i think leaders in general get in their own way I mean, it comes to a point in anyone's career, business, whatever they're doing. If you can imagine finding better people and putting them on your team, smarter people than you, I mean, we'd all benefit, but it takes courage to do that. You worry about the competition, but again, it's that whole belief that empower the competition, embrace them, be with them. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a wonderful sentiment. I think another way of um I mean, it's probably it's probably the same answer. I think another question I was interest you know that was interesting to me was if you could go back in time and the old Brian from the beginning of one eight hundred got junk could see who you are today. What would he be most surprised at? What's changed and who you've become? A part of building a business is always two things that are happening. You're clearly building this. You don't want to really call it a system. You're building this. You're building this collective. You're building this we. You're building this team. But another big part of that is you are building yourself. You have to change and evolve and improve and you know debury yourself <laughs> in a lot of ways as a leader over time. What do you think you'd be most surprised at if the Brian from 30 years ago could see the Brian today?
1: Another great question yeah you've got you've got some zingers clearly you've you've done a lot of these and done a great job. People often ask, what would you change you know going back to your nineteen year old self and I say nothing, but what would my younger self be surprised by I think just the the level of success that I've actually had, given the lack of confidence that I had for most of my life i mean. Remember, I was the kid that was always told no, 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 no in school. I went to 14 schools from kindergarten through to university. And I, the only diploma I have is kindergarten. I didn't finish high school. I didn't finish university. I'm not very book smart. I don't like to read and have trouble reading. And so it's interesting because I think I would have looked at myself in the future and said, for someone with so little confidence, it's amazing the people you've been able to rally. And what you've been able to inspire them to build with you.
0: Yeah, I think it's a wonderful sentiment. Then the last question is: you know, so you've been building this business for 30 years, it's a massive part of your life. And so, you know, it makes me start to think about, and I'm sure you're thinking about, and you've thought about over time, your legacy. And, and so I, the question I wanted to kind of end on is, what do you hope people say and remember about 1-800-GOT-JUNK when all is said and done? You know, if we were to jump forward 10, 20 years in the future, and, and maybe said another way, what do you hope they learn from your story?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the quote behind me, again, it's kind of fun to do the impossible, Walt Disney. If I can inspire people to think bigger, and think what is their gift in the world and how do they apply that think of what they can make possible i mean we've we've all got gifts I, i've realized that in talking to strangers on a bus through to some random person you meet on a on a trip and you just you realize every single person no matter who they are what they do has gifts for the planet how do we tap into that so i think my legacy is is getting people to think bigger when i wrote the first book wtf it took eight years for Roy H. Williams, my co-author, the Wizard of Ads, who does all our radio creative. Year after year after year, he tried to talk me into writing a book. And I said, Roy, like you can keep asking me, but the answer's still no. He said, why won't you write a book? And I said, my ego doesn't need one. I'm not a good reader, but yes, I can write a little bit, but I just, I don't think I have the time and all sorts of excuses. And he said, your ego, this isn't about you. This is about you writing a book that will make a difference to others. And I said, do you actually think it'll make a difference? And he said, of course, you have to tell your stories. And so that led me to then saying yes. And we chose to write the book.
0: And now you're on the precipice of a second book. So <laughs> clearly that, that went well one, enough. The <laughs> second one's written
1: and it's going live uh, in April. It's so, so exciting. It's, I guess I've now got the bug of seeing that it actually does make a difference to people. And so if my reason for being is to inspire entrepreneurship, why not write a book about how to start a business?
0: Yeah. And if you were curious about that, just go on Amazon and look at the 300 plus glowing reviews <laughs> about WTF willing to fail because <laughs> you've clearly had an impact on a lot of people. So for anyone listening, I mean, I highly encourage you to to pick up the book, WTF willing to fail. I have not pre-ordered BYOB. Is it is available for pre-order now?
1: I think it just went live for pre-order. Yeah. It's exciting.
0: Okay. So yeah. we'll link to that in the show notes. People Thank can go you. and find that. Thank you. And, you know, I don't think anyone needs any advice about where to go to f- learn more about 1-800-GOT-JUNK you can call 1-800-GOT-JUNK. You can visit one 800 got and, you know, Brian, you can also follow Brian on Twitter at uh, Brian Scudamore. And um, you're also doing interviews now as well, too. You have your own podcast.
1: Yeah. We started a podcast called Founders Stories. And people used to want to always hear my story on a podcast. And I said, but. But what about all the stories of our founders who are doing some pretty exceptional things? So I'm new to the podcast world. I mean, we're technically on season three and probably done 15 podcasts, but it's interesting. I love, as you probably do, when you tap into someone's story and you get to reflect and learn on their journey, it's, it's a it's fun a huge thing. privilege. Yeah. Yeah
0: goes back to your comment about, I think, building a business. (laughs) It's a huge privilege to be able to be a small part of that. Thank you so much for the time, Brian. It's been wonderful to have you on. I appreciate it. Thank you, Daniel. So much fun. Thank you so much for listening. For links to everything we discussed, as well as the notes and transcript for this episode, visit outlieracademy.com slash 92. That's 92. At outlieracademy.com, you can also find more incredible interviews with the founders of Levels, Superhuman, Eight Sleep, Rally, Common Stock, and so many others, as well as best-selling authors and many of the world's smartest investors. You can now also find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash outlieracademy. On our channel, you'll find all of our full-length interviews, as well as the best short clips from every episode, including this one. And you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn under the handle outlieracademy. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week right here on Outlier Academy.